uh, from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1. This is on page 969 of your pew Bibles. And as we continue to be reading and focusing on the early church, this is the first time that they actually experience opposition. So Acts 4, starting at verse 1. Peter and John arrested. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they'd been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who'd been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. This is the word of God. Good morning. My name is Kevin. It's my privilege to uh, teach this passage uh, from Acts uh, chapter 4 this morning. Uh, We are in this series uh, working our way through this Uh, book of Acts. 
where we're looking really at uh, the original source document of what uh, the church was like at the very beginning. This is the primary source when you want to learn about um, a teacher, when you learn, want to learn about a philosopher, for example, you can go to secondary sources. So if you want to read about Aristotle, you can read for centuries upon centuries of what people have are saying about what Aristotle said. But if you want to go to the primary source, you have to read Aristotle himself. And so uh, what we have here in the book of Acts is um, the primary source document of the early church, written by eyewitnesses, uh, to both to Jesus and to the early church is written by Luke, who is a medical doctor who took the time to research uh, what happened in the life of Jesus. He wrote that down in a document that we know as the Gospel of Luke. And then he continued to, uh, his research as he was uh, traveling with the Apostle Paul. As we get later in the book of Luke, Acts, we'll see he's going to start writing. We were doing this. And so he w- includes himself in this. He was eyewitness to many of these things. But he did historical research to uh, understand all that was happening at the very first time. And, and, uh, and so here we have the primary source document of what the church was like. We've seen the first sermon. We've seen the first um, worship service. We've seen the very first um, uh, prayer meeting of the early church. We've seen the first pouring out of God's spirit upon his people. And now, as John mentioned, we come to the very first persecution, the very first opposition that in hostility that the church receives from the hands of powerful people. You see, the, the church has an enemy. Um, his name is Satan, and he has many servants, uh, the devil and his demons. And they have some main tactics. And we're going to see three of those main tactics in consecutive chapters here in the book of Acts. Um, one of his main tactics to uh, try to squelch the church and the, the mission of the church and the movement of the church is uh, trials and, and, and opposition, persecutions. We see that beginning here in chapter 4. Uh, another tactic that Satan uses is that of moral compromise where he, where he tempts people who belong to the church to compromise their values and morals to to go ahead and not practice what they preach, so to say. We see that in chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And then we also see Satan tempting the church with distraction, saying, you're going to be all about a, a, a hundred different things except the things that I really want you to be about. We see that in Acts chapter 6, as there's some talk about the apostles are, are overwhelmed with you know, the feeding of uh, the feeding distributions and all of that, which are good things that are, are about the kingdom, and yet they say we must be devoted to the to prayer in the ministry of the word. And so, we're, uh, and I encourage you to just keep a copy of the scripture open, uh, whether it's on your uh, on your electronic device or in, uh, in the uh, uh, physical copy. I like a physical copy i love to hear the pages turn i love to feel it see it feels more permanent than reading it on a screen but whatever you want we're going to work our way just through this chapter we're going to work our way through and uh, make some comments along uh, the way as we go so uh, we're actually going to read this passage again together just allow god's word to sink into us hopefully over this um this morning so while they were speaking to the people. So what this is happening here is that in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are going to the temple to worship and to pray, and they come across a man who's been disabled from birth, who's, who's a beggar at the, uh, at the entrance to the gate of the temple. And he's asking for money, and Peter and John say to him, 
We don't have any money, but what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And the man begins to walk and leap and jump and is praising God for the miracle that Jesus has done through his people. And Peter and John, as we saw last week, took that opportunity then to boldly in the temple courts as this great commotion, as there's this stir that they begin to proclaim that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Peter's saying, you guys all killed him. Please don't kill me. But God raised him from the dead. And, um, and repent so that times of refreshing may come. That, that in Jesus, God is restoring all things. But repent and, and, and begin to follow after him and be, become a follower of Jesus. Put your trust in him. And he'll begin to do in you what God's already done in Jesus. That is, raise him from the dead. And so they're teaching the people. So while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. The people in power confront Peter and John because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them, took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about five. So there's this showdown now that's been set here between Peter and John, followers of Jesus, and those who are in authority, those who are in positions of power uh, in the culture. You see, the preaching of the resurrection is always threatening to those who are in power. The preaching of resurrection in Jesus, not talking about even Jesus' resurrection, but saying that in Jesus... There is a resurrection from the dead that all who die in Christ will be raised again to appear and everyone will be raised to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And those who are found in Christ will receive this glorified body that will enter into into this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth with a glorified body as God restores all things and ushers in his kingdom and its fullness. Those who are in positions of power now find that threatening. Because maybe I won't be in this privileged position in the resurrection. And so we have these different factions that all hate the gospel, that are all hostile to the gospel. We've got um, the priests and the, the, the captain of the temple police. So we've got some political powers. We've got Sadducees. Sadducees are the religious, religious liberals. Uh, of the day, um, they uh, they were uh, kind of in bed with the Romans, if you will, the Romans, uh, which were the occupying uh, force in Israel, had uh, given much power to this minority group, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious group that really did not believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that at the that they believed just. What you see is what you get. This is your one life now. Um, they're a very uh, educated, they were an elitist group. And um, the priests, though, were mostly Pharisees. Many of them were Pharisees who were religious conservatives, who did believe in miracles and the supernatural, who did believe in the, taking the Scripture very, very literally. And so you've got all of these different groups that really have nothing in common with each other except that they're hostile to the gospel. Except that they're hostile to the message 
of grace. And they're annoyed. They're disturbed. The word there means grieved. That their resurrection in Jesus is being preached. The intellectual elites, the political elites, the religious elites are annoyed. They're grieved. They're ticked off. That the message of Jesus, which they tried to quelch just a few weeks earlier through Jesus' crucifixion, that Jesus is still being preached. And so Peter and John are seized, they're arrested, they're put into prison overnight. But, it's a big but. There's a lot of big buts in the Bible. But, verse 4, many of those who heard the message believed. The number of the men came to about 5,000. We're not sure if that word there means men or people. Anyway, it's a large group. But the, the, the but there is, is to say that in contrast to the fact that Peter and John are seized, arrested, and put into prison, that in spite of their imprisonment, the gospel of Jesus is never in jail, that what, though you can segregate and you can stop certain people, certain of Jesus' followers for certain periods of time, and yes, you can even silence them for good by by killing them, the gospel of Jesus can't be reined in. The gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is never imprisoned, is never able to be contained. But even though there's opposition, the, the, the number of those who follow Jesus continues to grow. In verse 5, then the next day the rulers, elders, scribes, again these various groups that make up what's known as the Sanhedrin, Assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, By what power or in what name have you done this? The emphasis actually in this, in this question is on the word you. It's the last word. There's, it's, a, it's an emphasized in the original language. It's like, who do you think you are? We're the ones who should be teaching the people. We're the ones with authority. We're the ones with political and cultural power. We're the ones who have the right to speak and to teach the people. Who do you think you are? We know who we are. We're rulers. We're scribes. We're educated. We're elite. We're elders. We're high priests. We have positions. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 men that gathered daily in a semicircle just beside the temple. And Peter and John were brought into the middle of that semicircle, dropped right in the middle. Sound familiar? Who else was placed in the middle of this group early in the morning? John 18:12 the company of the soldiers the commander the Jewish official officials arrested Jesus tied him up first they led him to Annas since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people speaking much better than he knew Luke 22:66 When the daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests, the scribes, convened and brought him, that's Jesus, before their Sanhedrin. 
They said, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Peter and John are here walking in the path of their Savior, their King, their Shepherd, who went before them, brought to this place, to this court of power. Those in power want to suppress anything that's seen as as seditious, as subversive to their positions of power. They want to squelch any uprising. And they say, who do you think you are? By what power or in what name have you done this? It's not just a thoughtful, honest inquiry. They're not wondering what Peter and John are all about, but they're understanding that their position is being threatened. There's a threat of problem. The status quo could be upset. And so they're upset. You see, most opposition to the gospel of Jesus is not because of a lack of persuasion. There's something else that drives hatred of the gospel. There's something else that always threatens, that, that, that is threatened by the gospel, which pro- provokes hostility towards it. And it's almost never a lack of intellect. It's, never, it's almost never a lack of intellectual persuasion. It's that the gospel of Jesus comes up against and butts up against the very things on which we've built our life. And so you, you see Peter here talking about the cornerstone, right, in, in a few verses. He's referencing to Psalm 118, again, showing that he's, he's very aware of the, of the Scripture. But the cornerstone is that which the rest of the house or the rest of the building was built upon. It was the one with the, the square angles and the, and the true lines. And so they would b- set the cornerstone first and, 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 and build off from that. And, and so they, you could say the entire building rested on the cornerstone. And, and so p- the gospel of Jesus always comes up and butts up against our cornerstone, our fundamental, our bottom line. The thing in which we're really, really living for. The thing that gets us up in the morning. The thing that um, is our reason for living. The, the thing in which we put our confidence. We always put our confidence in what drives us. We put our confidence in, um, in, that, in, in our bottom line. Whether that's our morality. I'm a decent person. Whether it's our education, our career, our power, or success, our popularity. There's something that drives us. There's something that's our fundamental, that when, when push comes to shove and when all the chips are on the table, this is the thing that will, will drive, that will always win out when we're forced to decide between two things. When, it, when push comes to shove, there's something that's going to be our fundamental, our bottom line. And the gospel of Jesus always threatens that. What's wrong with the world today? Well, some people say, well, there's just not any decent people. But I am. I'm a decent person. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. What's wrong with the world today? Well, it's not enough sophisticated people. I'm one. I'm, a, I'm educated. I'm enlightened. You see, what we, what, what we put our hope in, what we put our trust in, becomes our confidence. Our cornerstone becomes our confidence. And the gospel of Jesus always butts up against that. It always threatens that. And so that there's a, there's a natural hostility. And so these groups that really can't agree with each other about anything, 
accept their hostility towards the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus because the very fundamental to their life is being threatened by Jesus and his message, saying that actually there's no one who's decent. There's no one who's really truly sophisticated. We're all in need. We all need saving. We all need rescue. We all need help beyond ourselves. And so Jesus, or uh, Peter, preaches this mini-sermon, beginning in verse 8. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Again. Right? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He's filled again with the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, if you're upset that we healed someone, what's your problem? If you want to know by what means he was healed, I'll tell you. Let it be known to all of you, to everyone, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Just Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. I want us to notice Peter's boldness. Notice Peter's boldness. It's highlighted here. It's pointed out here as it was in Acts chapter 3 and as it was in Acts chapter 2 that Peter, filled with the Spirit of God, becomes bold. He actually is a, becomes a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says, When they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, which they will, Don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Notice his boldness. He's he's not beating around the bush. He's not trying to smooth things over. He's up front and actually very bold and in their face and clear about what he's all about, what happened with with this uh, disabled man. And the Holy Spirit has empowered Peter for, procl- for proclaiming Jesus. Just as Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, Stay here in Jerusalem. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Real key verse for understanding the book of Acts, that the power of the Holy Spirit... Isn't power only for some mystical experience? The power of the Holy Spirit isn't, isn't power just for a, spe- a spectacle. The power of the Holy Spirit is for witness to Jesus, for the mission of the church of making Jesus known who he is and what he's done, what he's accomplished, and the significance of who Jesus is for our day. The, the power of the Holy Spirit is always for proclamation about Jesus. And so... Peter says, I want you to know that actually this healing that was performed by Jesus, I didn't do it. Jesus did it. I want you to know actually that it's a sign. It's pointing to a greater healing that needs to take place. We can miss that in this in our English translations. But in the, the Greek language, if you look at verse 9, look at verse 9, it says, If we're examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed? The word healed there is a Greek word called soso, 
S-O-Z-O. And if you look down at verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. S-O-Z-O. Sozo. Same Greek word. What, P- what Peter is saying here is that what happened to this crippled man is a sign pointing to a greater reality that by which you must be saved. You must be healed. What actually happened to this crippled man uh, needs to happen to you. It needs to happen to all people. That, the, the, that this miracle, that this is a sign, is pointing to a greater reality. That's what signs always do, right? Signs aren't the point. Signs point to the point. Right? You don't go to the Grand Canyon and take a picture of the sign that says Grand Canyon in three miles. You go, the, the, the sign is telling you where to get to the point. And that's what the, the, the rulers themselves in verse 16 say that, that a sign has been done. In verse 22, this sign of healing. It's a sign. It's pointing to something greater. The signs always point to something beyond themselves. And so this isn't just a miracle for sheer power's sake. This is a sign that's pointing to a greater reality that needs to take place. And Peter is bold in saying, it's through Jesus. You must be saved. You must be healed. That what's happened to the the new capacities that this man now has, that he was fallen and and, and in a desperate... He was a desperate case. He was in, in dire straits. He was... He, he had no means of providing for himself. He, he, had, he had no means of, um, he had no future of um, a family or no future of, of, of uh, a life of dignity. And now he has all of that. And that must happen to you. Jesus has come so that that can happen with you. And so Peter proclaims both their guilt. He references Psalm 18, says, you have rejected him. You've crucified him. You've, you've killed Jesus, but God's raised him from the dead, and you can be saved. You can be saved. Notice Peter's boldness. Now, boldness is not a volume level. Boldness is not a personality type. Boldness is a quiet heart of faith that believes in the power of the gospel to change anyone. That's what boldness is. Boldness isn't boldness isn't that you become an obnoxious used car salesman. It's it's that you. It's that God uses your voice and your personality as you are to point to Jesus. To just clearly say salvation isn't found in you being a great person. Salvation isn't found in you being more educated. Salvation, ultimate, ultimate freedom and healing isn't found in, in you working your way up the corporate ladder. You'll never actually be fulfilled. What you need is Jesus. And so a boldness is to say is is just a heart a heart of of faith to say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you and I love this person and so I don't want to I don't want to conceal you from them and so I'm going to point them towards you, and I believe that your gospel your gospel of grace is the power to change hearts and minds and lives and so help me use me help me to open my mouth. Now Peter emphasizes the exclusivity of Jesus, right? No other name given un, under heaven among people whereby we must be saved. Now this, admittedly, does not play well in our culture. In our pluralistic society, this verse doesn't play well. 
Doesn't play well with others, if you will. Isn't that arrogant? To say there's only one way? To say everyone else is wrong? Isn't that intolerant? We'll never achieve peace on earth as long as those religious fundamentalists keep saying there's only one way. And I don't mean to put that down. I, I, I understand how that sounds in our culture. In our culture, that's really redefined tolerance to, to say, hey, any take is equally valid. Any, any point of view is equally valid. That's what we've taken tolerance to mean. And instead of, how do you treat those who have a different take than you? Personally, I think that's what tolerance is all about, is, is how, how does your beliefs about ultimate reality lead you to treat people who believe differently than you do? As opposed to saying, tolerance cannot mean every view is equally valid. It can't mean that. It's, that's actually a self-defeating argument. Because that statement itself, that every, every point of view, every religious view is equally valid, is a statement about religious reality that you believe to be true, and mine false, that you think I should believe, i.e., every religious view is equally valid. You see, that's just as an exclusive view as Jesus being the only way. And so it sounds much more accepting, it sounds much more hospitable, it sounds much more kind to say, oh, there's... There's one mountain, but there's many paths to the mountain to get to the summit. Or the, you know, the illustration of the, the, the bl- people who are blind, who are, who've encountered an elephant, and one saying, oh, an elephant, and they're touching the leg. It's like a tree. And the other's like, no, 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 you're crazy. It's like a snake, because they're t- touching the trunk. And they're like, no, 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 it's, it's like a wall as they're touching the side. But again, who's to say? Are you the one with sight? Are you the one seeing the whole picture so you know that God is like an elephant and we're like the blind people touching it? Again, you're elevating yourself to a place of, of, of what you would define as arrogance and exclusivity. You see, we are all necessarily exclusive in our beliefs, in our convictions, that, i.e. we think we're right. And so tolerance is better defined by how do you treat those who differ than you. And friends, if your fundamental is a man dying for his enemies, serving his enemies, loving his enemies, I think, I think the Christian faith actually has deeper resources for tolerance than any other view in the world. And we increasingly see, as, as um, in, in our society, which has become increasingly post-Christian, that the, um, the liberal elite view of reality has, has come into the place of power. Isn't it interesting that any dissenting view is now shamed publicly and, and silenced? Whether it be a, a moral belief about when human life begins or what marriage is or, uh, or, or whatever, that 
any dissenting view is publicly shamed and silenced. I find it I find it fascinating, but I need to tell you that according to the scriptures and according to Jesus of Nazareth, he's the only way. He's the only way to the mountaintop. There's only one path. And he's given his name has been given to you. You've got the gospel. You've heard the good news that Jesus has lived the life we should have lived. He's died the death we should have died. He's risen again. And he's ascended to the right hand of God. He's going to come again to, to, to usher in a kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace. And you're invited in to repent, to trust in him, and to believe in him. And friends, you must believe it. You must. For it to be well with you. For you to be restored to God. For you to be reconciled with, with the creator of the universe. And the creator of your soul, the creator of your body. There's only one way to be restored to God. And you must believe in him. And so I beg you today, I plead with you to consider him. To, to consider the claims of Jesus. And where do you start? Cons- start with the resurrection. Start with the resurrection of Jesus. Did he really rise from the dead? Did Jesus of Nazareth come walk out of a grave three days after he was crucified? That's the question on which history hangs and if so if you feel like you have if you actually were kind of offended when i said earlier that much hostility and opposition to the gospel of jesus uh, isn't intellectual it's there's something different there's there's something more visceral than our intellectual opposition if that offended you and like no i have real doubts i have real questions i where, where do you start start by examining the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That's what, really what did it for me. That's what, that's what overcame my intellectual opposition to the gospel as a, as a teenager, as a uh, young adult. That as, as I examined the historical evidence for, for the resurrection of Jesus, that's what dropped my guard. And then if Jesus was crucified on Friday but was walking around on Sunday, you better pay attention to him kind of validates everything else he says and so if you have a place to start examine the resurrection of jesus what peter and john were preaching here in the early part of acts i am nowhere near my notes sorry about that um so again though this this doesn't play well in our culture this exclusive one-way view. Again, we're all religious. We all have convictions. We're necessarily exclusive in our views about ultimate reality. You say, well, what about... What about I know lots of people who are, who are better people than the Christians I know. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> right? And it's actually not surprising because the... The Christian view of reality is that everyone's made in the image of God. We all have the imprint of the divine on us. We're all made in the image of God. And actually, if your fundamental is, I've got to be a really, really good person, you're probably going to be, like, there's going to be people out there who are trying really, really hard to be really, really good. Whereas followers of Jesus are those who said, man, I give up. I can't be good. I know I'm not good. I know we're saved by works. 
Jesus' work for me. Now that should transform us over time. And we should become morally improved. But friends, there's one name, there's one king, there's one way, there's one path, there's one shepherd, there's one truth, there's one life. His name is Jesus. And it's in his name we must be saved. Quickly, 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that. Isn't that awesome? Greek word there, idiote. They saw that they were idiots. If that offends you, take it up with Dr. Luke. He wrote it. Greek word. They were idiot. idiot. They were they were not schooled in the traditions of the rabbi. They were not educated. They were, they were not the elites of their culture. And they're like, whoa, how can these guys, how do these guys know the scriptures so well? How, how can they make such, um, how, do they, how can they, in the face of the elites of the day, in the face of the PhDs of the day, how can they speak with such boldness and, 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 and authority? And they were like, oh, it reminds us of Jesus. Jesus wasn't trained in the tradition of the rabbis either, and yet from an early age he was schooling the elites. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? Spend time being with Jesus. Instead of trying really, really hard to be like Jesus, spend time with Jesus, and you'll become more and more like him. It's the same is true with people, right? You become the more more time you spend with your spouse, the more alike you actually become. In a lot of ways, some of you even look like your spouse over time. I won't say who. What should we do with these people? For an obvious sign has been done through them. It's clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them. Again, speaking to anyone in this name again. So they call for them, ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're like, what do we do? How do we hold on to our place? I know. Tell them to shut up. That's it. That's all we got, right? Like, stop talking about Jesus. That's all they've got. And Peter says, you know what? Sorry. He says, we actually don't have the power to not talk about it. There's this unstoppable force inside of us, and that's the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's this unstoppable force. He says, we are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't do it. It's on our lips. You see, we always talk about the thing that we love, right? The things that are important to us are the things we talk about. The things that we love are the things we're talking about. A lot of us are talking about the raptors these days, right? It's exciting, it's, it's on our hearts. It's on our minds. We're like, somehow it's fulfilling some national pride issues that we have as Canadians, I think. But it's on our, it's on our lips. The things that we, you know, we, most of us love our kids, and so we talk about our kids to the annoyance of other people. It's what, what, what we love is what we talk about. What's most important to us is what we, what we talk about. And Peter's like, I can't help it. I have to tell you about Jesus. And so you threaten me all you want, I'm not going to do it. When, when he's like, I have direct orders from Jesus to tell what we've seen and heard. And so whether it's right to obey you or Jesus, I'm picking Jesus every time. Is what he says to these men who literally just weeks earlier crucified Jesus. He's like, do your worst, do your best. 
I'm not stopping. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For the sign of healing had been performed on the man over 40, 40 years old. But 40 is the new 30. Don't worry about it. I'm almost 40. I threw out my back this morning getting up out of a chair. I need, I need someone to pray for me so that I won't be a crippled man like this, this guy here. Friends, we have these Sanhedrin moments every day. We have Sanhedrin moments every day where we choose to proclaim Jesus or not. It's interesting, too. Um, the Sanhedrin, they're like, what do we do? What, what don't they do? Produce a body. They don't produce a body. They don't deny what Peter says. Peter's, Peter says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. It's striking to me that the, the elders, the rulers, the chief of police, everyone who wants to squelch this movement doesn't just say, no, God didn't raise him from the dead. Look, here's the body. Produce a body, stop the movement. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They didn't even try to do it. They're like, just stop talking about it. Under the rug. Friends, that's what the resurrection in Jesus does in us. This passage is actually all about the resurrection in Jesus. They're speaking about, they're preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They're not only just talking about Jesus' resurrection. They're talking about our resurrection. They're talking about our life. And the boldness and the fearlessness that that produces in us. And the focus on Jesus, the, the boldness to tell anyone and everyone about Jesus. See, resurrection, the, the, the reality of in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, ought to make us fearless people. I love in John chapter 11, Jesus attends Lazarus' funeral and he, as you know, raises Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for a while. And, and Lazarus walks out of the grave. And at the end of that chapter, the, the religious uh, leaders were annoyed because Jesus is gaining popularity uh, because news of this miracle of raising a man from the dead was spreading. So what did they do? And I love this. They threatened to kill Lazarus. Is Lazarus scared by the threat of death? He's like, I've already done that. Try. Kill me. Jesus can raise me again. He's done it before. And friends, we are meant to see in Lazarus' death and resurrection, our death and ultimate resurrection. This, we don't need to have our best life now. We don't need to be afraid of sickness we don't need to be afraid of opposition. We don't need to be afraid of having our name slandered. We don't need to be afraid of not being in political power, or not being in the in crowd, or not being... Because the day is coming where there will be no more sickness, sadness, sorrow, or death, where there will be no hatred or hostility, where every tear will be wiped away, where there will you will receive a glorified body in the resurrection of the dead. 
which has already happened in Jesus, that what God has done in Jesus, he's going to do in you one day, that God is going to restore and renew all things, that though this creation now is in groaning, though our bodies are in groaning, though, our, though we're not in the in crowd in, the, in this culture, the day is coming where we will rule and reign with Jesus in, in the kingdom, because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign Forever and ever, he will heal this world. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sadness. That everything that's broken is going to be put back together. Everything that's fallen is going to be lifted up. Everything that's, that's been marred by, by the sin is going to be made beautiful again. And we will, the, the trees of the forest are going to sing for joy. Imagine what we'll do. Isn't that amazing? The resurrection of Jesus should make us fearless and fill us with hope. That overflows. So let's pray. So Father in heaven, fill us with boldness to proclaim Jesus. Fill us with fearlessness that comes when truly believing in the resurrection of the dead. And help us, Father, to go out into this world to be your witnesses. Witnesses of all that Jesus has done for us. So as we worship you, continue to worship you this morning. Bind us together as a people. Fill us with deep hope and joy as we trust in you. In Jesus' great name, amen. This is our connection time. Why don't you greet someone? We have some uh, family members from Burundi in the room today. I'll let you scope them out. Uh, Get your kids. We're going to respond with all, all of our ages in worship. There's coffee outside. Give someone a hug. Pray for each other. And uh, this now is our connection time.